I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis tonight. And out of necessity's sake, we're going to have to uh, do some skipping, and so we're going to start in the area of chapter 42, but we have come to the triumph finally. As we've had a series, Trauma, Trouble, and Triumph, we have made it finally to the resolution. And it's an exciting thing when you finally make it to the resolution, isn't it? When there's finally the good side reached. Have you ever watched a, a movie and, and, or read a book and you're just, you're just, that tension just needs to be resolved the whole time and you're just waiting for that to happen? Uh, you may have read a book sometime that was so long that you just thought, are we ever going to get to the end of this and, and make it, you know, I wonder for all those years what Joseph had thought because in reality, as we kind of ended last week, he had had the two children that were born to him. He had named them in order to say that God has caused me to forget and, and God has gotten me through my troubles. And so you might expect to see after that and Joseph lived happily ever after, but that wasn't the end of what God had planned, was it? that he was gonna have to cross paths uh, with the people who were a good ways away, but were gonna come uh, to stand in front of him once more after so many years. At the time when Joseph sees his brothers again, he is, from the best we can gauge the biblical data, he's 39 years old, or at least 39 years old, which means he's been in Egypt, from the best we can gather, since the age of about 17. So more than half of his life has been spent uh, in, in Egypt. That's been his uh, primary existence in some ways at this point. Now, for all of us, the first 18 years is the slowest, right? So no matter how old you are in here, you probably feel like the first half of your life was the first 18 years and then everything after that was the second half. Uh, that, that, that sort of just, I don't know, for me at least it stays that way. I'm getting further and further from, you know, 18 years being half my life. It's no longer half my life. So we, we've got that side of just, you know, zooming out and seeing that Joseph is um, now dealing with something that, uh, that is, has been, you know, that he hasn't had to deal with in 22 years in terms of personally. Just to kind of remind you of the story here, Joseph was sold uh, into slavery. From there, he was scammed by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused and thrown in prison. He would remain there for years. I don't know when the last time you had to walk through something hard that was somebody else's fault was, uh, but he was in prison for years. Uh, I know we live in a day and age now where DNA evidence is starting to uh, make us realize that at times there have been people who have been in prison for decades at a time. Uh, and when we realize that actually they weren't the ones who committed a crime. And so it's always amazing to see what kind of statements those folks make. I'm, I'm, I have tended to marvel at the gentleness of a lot of them as they come out of years and years of prison. They, they don't seem to be uh, dealing with that in terms of anger and hatred, but they've sort of had to deal with it so much already that they come out with some amount of grace in that. Um, Joseph is forgotten. He does something for someone, and that guy says, hey, I'm not going to forget you, buddy. You're, I got you on my Rolodex, my speed dial, or whatever, you know, you want to call the equivalent of. I'm going to take care of you because you took care of me. And then he leaves, and sure enough, for two years, uh, Joseph hears nothing. It's not until Pharaoh has a dream that Joseph is remembered where all of a sudden uh, the guy says, oh, that's right, I do know a guy who can possibly help you out. 
And thankfully, he didn't feel it was too awkward to reach out to Joseph at that point. And so Joseph comes and stands before Pharaoh, gives him the interpretation of his dream through the power of God, tells him not only is there plenty that's going to be coming for the next seven years, but there's famine that's going to follow that for seven years. We need to start making preparations now. And so Joseph is not only empowered, but he is uplifted. He becomes the second most prominent person in the kingdom. And you can make the argument that at that time, Egypt was at least the most prominent kingdom in the Western world. And so you've got this idea that Joseph has gone from being sold as a slave uh, to now being the second most uh, powerful person uh, for for much of the globe. Now, for a a passage also that we will be sort of on bookending either side of tonight, you probably know uh, the narrative of the fact that As Joseph has told his brothers, if you want to get a chance to get food and go home and uh, and do what I've asked you to do, you're going to have to leave your one of your brothers here and bring me back your youngest brother that you told me about, Benjamin. They think, well, boy, that's strange. But then uh, all of a sudden, I believe it's Simeon who's kept there in chains, and and then the rest of them begin to head back to get Benjamin. As you probably know the story, Joseph is going to orchestrate something so that Benjamin appears to have stolen, uh, and then from that, he's going to have to uh, be basically the servant or or remain in Egypt and and even remain in prison. And so this is a, a tough deal because Jacob, the father of all of these guys, after all these years, still has a varsity distinction for Joseph and Benjamin versus all of his other children. So you're going to see that still coming out in this story tonight. He has children that are old enough to themselves have adult children. But that has been going on for years, and he's still stuck in this mode of, well, here's my two kids I really love and really cherish and really value, and then there's everybody else. And so we come to the passage tonight, we're going to sort of bookend both sides of that. And I want to give a a few things that sort of bring us to the triumph, hopefully. Because for some of us in here, we might be in situations where maybe you're facing pain, you're facing difficulty, maybe you're facing a situation where you're having to choose whether or not you're going to forgive, whether or not you're going to restore, how you're going to deal with situations of trauma or even abuse, how you're going to walk through just pain that you continue to carry around, what's it like to deal with shame or guilt or any of those things. And so I want to look at a few pieces of of the passage tonight as we bounce around and Lord willing, uh, be faithful enough to let us all kind of be on the same page uh, here with with where we're going. So let me go ahead and give you the first blank to fill in even now uh, for the sake of our time. And that's this, change is often slow and messy. Change is often slow and messy. Wouldn't it be great if one conversation fixed everything? Wouldn't that be wonderful if all it took was just one conversation, one, you know, good moment, one thing that might happen. It it often is not that. It takes a more patient uh, look. All these brothers thought if they would just end Joseph's existence in their family, their problems would be solved. What they found out was that their problems were only beginning. So you can imagine that the difficulty of still dealing with their father's lack of love and support and care Uh, for all these years following Joseph's selling into slavery. And then on top of that, to still hear again and again that there's one son left uh, that he values, and that's Benjamin. He's not been allowed to go down to Egypt because, of course, uh, Jacob says, well, I can afford to lose any of the rest of you, but not Benjamin. Imagine your father, you know, saying that to you. And so basically, as they come back and say, well, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to to take... um, 
Take Benjamin or none of us are going to be able to eat. None of us are going to survive. Now, there's a scripture reference here, 4238. I'm going to actually start one verse ahead of that in verse 37. The sons are trying to argue with Jacob to say, we've got to get Benjamin down there or we are all going to starve. And they're trying to reason with their father. Notice what Reuben says to Jacob. Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now, for those of you who are parents in here, you love your kids. Now, for those of you who are grandparents in here, you love your grandkids, don't you? I got to hear, Steve was telling me today, his granddaughter asked for donuts on the other end of the phone the other day. She had donuts that night, you know, it was just took care of, so I've heard it, what's that? Within 30 minutes, yeah. Faster than Domino's, you know, Steve got donuts to the grandkids. Uh, I think David Jeremiah says that grandparents and grandkids like each other so much because they've got a common enemy. And, uh, and so there's this way that uh, joined each other. Can you imagine how broken your family must be for one of your children to say, you can take the life of your two grandchildren if I don't restore back to you the son that you love more than the rest of us. All these years later, and all this pain later, Jacob still has so much to work through. For some of, them, some of you in here, you've got family members and loved ones that spent a long walk with whatever it is. Jacob had a long walk with this. Jacob's even going to get to Egypt and he's going to see his son Joseph who he believed was dead and he is going to find out that he is alive and he is going to find out even then that not only is there a home prepared for them and a place where they can stay and bring their families and they can be uh, wealthy essentially compared to what they were used to, they were going to get a chance to be taken care of, they would not have to worry about the food they were going to eat and every problem in their life had been solved and when Jacob comes before uh, Pharaoh and Pharaoh or the, the king t talks to him about you know who he is and, and Jacob's going to say essentially to him the days of my life have been evil from start to finish and you think wow Jacob you're the one who wrestled the angel and God moved and, and called you basically Israel that becomes your name and you're going to be the one whose lineage is going to be declared for the centuries to come that people will trace back to you and, and this distinction for Israel, you're the one who was blessed with uh, all of the herds and flocks and, and, uh, and blessing and when you worked for Laban and, and on and on. When you went back to Esau and you thought Esau was going to kill you and you found out by the time you got there that Esau had forgiven you and the biggest problem in your life was solved before you even got there and God had taken care of that. And when your sons sold your other son into slavery because of the way that you made them feel about their brother... And after all these years, he's been restored to you. That Jacob could say, the days of my life have been evil from start to finish. Some of y'all got that family member, don't you? That no matter what, it's just always the glass has not even got any water in it. And uh, Jacob had a number of things that he was dealing with. As we come to verse 38, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you 
For his brother is dead and he's the only one left. The only one. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now remember Simeon, he's hanging out in prison in Egypt. Now I've never been to an Egyptian prison myself and, you know, this far back in the ancient world, but I would imagine it's not been an easy time. And every day, Jacob's eating the grain, eating the grain, eating the grain. And it's not until they get all the way to the bottom that he says, okay, I guess we're finally going to have to do something. Simeon's life, not valued. The rest of their lives, not really valued in such a way that everything is so focused on Benjamin. So this grain that they had been given while they were in Egypt, they're to take Benjamin back if they're going to see Joseph's face again. And so change is slow and often messy. And that's what we're going to see here, even in the midst of the great things that happen. Even when we come to some great resolution, there's still, as you read the later chapters of Genesis, there's some things to work out. And even the very last chapter, Joseph's brothers think, now that our father's gone, he's going to you know, he's going to lord it over us and he's going to hurt us and he's going to do this and that, where he has to continually convince them that they're forgiven. And so then we come to the passage in Genesis 44 where Joseph is going to be testing his brothers, uh, that they are going to come in, they're going to see him, that he has got something arranged so that they're going to have to keep coming back to the reality of what they had done. He's in some sense, toying with them. And I think God, to some extent, had directed him in doing this. I'm not saying that if you've got somebody who needs your forgiveness, you should figure out a scheme to really try to trap them and do these other things. I think the pattern that we see here is that Joseph has been given a way in which to force them to keep coming back to the reality of what they've done, to not just send them food and send them off to never see them again, uh, but to bring about restoration. God's working even in the midst of this. And so they have this nice meal and Benjamin gets more food than any of the rest of the brothers. And, you know, you've got this whole, you know, sense of, of everything just being a really nice time. And the brothers think, well, boy, wasn't that nice? Let's all go home. But it's then as they get these bags of grain and as they're headed back that way that a troop from the Egyptian army comes to them and says, somebody's taken one of the silver cups and whoever's found with that, it's not going to be good. And they say, well, nobody in our group took that, you know, that far be it from us that we would do that. All of a sudden they get to Benjamin's, you know, sack of grain and there it is. He didn't steal it. It was placed there, but then they know they're in big trouble and they head back. And now they've got to think, even for them, you know, I don't know how they felt about Benjamin, but by that point they'd reached a scenario where they said, we can't go back and tell our dad now that the other son that he loves is gone. And so they've got, I think they're forced finally to make something of what uh, repentance needs to happen for what had happened before. So change is slow and messy. And the second thing is this, restoration can only take place when people face what they've done. Now it's possible for us to forgive people who have not faced what they have done, have not admitted what they've done, who've not maybe had a version of reality where they understand what they've done. It's possible for us to forgive them. 
But restoration really only becomes possible when, able, when people are willing to face and be honest about what's been done. I can't tell you how many times uh, late in life for people, it's the first time that they've said, I was too abusive to you kids when you were younger, 50, 60 years ago. I never should have done this. I never should have done that. I, I know I've gotten to sit, on, sit in on a number of those conversations with folks. This idea of things that have been eating away at people for years. And almost at the point where it's too late to be restored, that's when finally restoration is sought. And that's better than it not being sought at all. But restoration can only take place when people face what they've done. Genesis 44, let's look to, uh, to verse 16. Actually, let's look back at verse 14. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he is alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, my father, we told the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. The moment had come and Judah takes the center stage. Judah is not the firstborn, of course, Reuben is. He is not the secondborn. He is not the thirdborn. He is the fourthborn son of Leah. And he stands 
to make right what he had done wrong so many years before when he looked at his brothers and said, why don't we try to make a little money off of Joseph? Perhaps all these years Joseph had remembered that Judah was the one that said that, but then Judah is the one that rises to speak in this moment. And what he does essentially is he retells the story that Joseph knows about the situation that they're in. What he also does is he says, take my life instead of Benjamin's. I will go in his place. Vodi Bauckham, in speaking on this passage, does a, a really great job of drawing in the truth that in the story of Joseph, the central understanding for us is not to see that when people wrong us, if we'll follow the Lord, someday we'll be the people in power, we'll be able to get an apology out of them, and we'll be able to be the ones that are praised when before we were condemned. That's, that's not ultimately the message of what we see here in the book of Genesis, that Joseph is wronged. And he will go on to say that God had this plan so that all of them would survive and so that the next coming centuries would be what they should be. God had a plan all along and what they intended for evil, God intended for good. And Judah is the one who makes right what he had previously done wrong and offers himself in Benjamin's stead. It would be many a centuries later when his descendant, the Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, would offer himself in our stead. The story of Joseph was not simply about Joseph's rescue from slavery and difficulty. It was about the exaltation or the, the restoration of Judah to become the central tribe and the central place in which we would see the nobility of stepping into a moment and doing what is right. And God honored that for centuries to come. And so Saul, descended from the line of Benjamin, becomes king, but he would ultimately not be the lasting kingdom because David from the tribe of Judah would take the throne. And it was then that the lineage would continue and go on and go on and go on. And so even in this moment, what is being foreshadowed is the one from the tribe of Judah who would step forward not to make right his own sin, but to make right our sin in our place. And so Joseph seeing from his brother what he more than likely had never seen, uh, is moved to tears. And this becomes the turning point uh, of the story. Judah sacrifices himself for one of Rachel's children, the chosen, the enemy family, so to speak, that Judah looks towards uh, the good of his father. He lays aside the jealousy, the prejudice, the bitterness, and he offers himself in his place. You know, would Judah's descendants have been the ones that were faithful when the other tribes abandoned the kingdom had there not been this moment? I don't know the answer to that. But I know that essentially Judah's tribe, Judah's family line becomes interchangeable for the kingdom of the Jews by the time of Jesus because of their faithfulness and their looking towards uh, God's leadership in their life, even with their stumbling and their brokenness and all of that. You know, the legacy of your and my life may come down to one moment where we do the right thing, even when it's difficult. Looking back over all the years, 
and thinking through the interactions that people have had with us, our lives may come down to one unplanned, necessary moment to make things right. And Judah chooses rightly in this moment, and it makes all the difference. Judah faces what he's done. And in that, the brothers are led into facing what they've done. What they don't realize is that the person they're speaking to has also been facing what has happened. They have no idea that Joseph is the one standing in front of them. They're already horrified. Can you imagine what they thought when all of a sudden he said, I'm Joseph, by the way. You remember in the old uh, movies and things like that, there'd be that sound. Kids today don't know what it's like to hear a record come to a stop. You remember that? Your record player, if you just reached over and grabbed it, you remember that? Just sort of, I picture that sound effect all of a sudden, you know. By the way, I'm Joseph. But the weeping, and we see the way in which Joseph is moved, not just simply to tears. It's not a nice, you know, picturesque tear that's rolling down his cheek. This is weeping. Uh, kids today, I think, call that the ugly cry. And he is, he is weeping for what has happened. And so the third thing we see, when repentance is there, it's time to forgive. When repentance is there, it's time to forgive. Let me make sure I gave you, I don't remember if I left a blank in the subpoint, but what Judah said to Joseph was probably the most important statement of his entire life. He never knew in all the interactions it would come down to doing the right thing in that moment. But then number three, when repentance is there, it's time to forgive. A few years ago, North Korea allowed some family members who had been separated when South Korea and North Korea were divided. That was back in the late 1940s, early 1950s, I believe. They hadn't seen some of their family members in something like 70 years at that point. And they had a special room that they would come to where these family members disconnected for decades and decades and decades were able to see each other again. And there were some pictures from the news article that came across from that. you and I had been in that room, unless you speak Korean, I don't, we wouldn't have understood a single word that was said. And yet, as you look at these photos, you can understand exactly what's on their face, can't you? The release of time and pain and loss and the letting go of all of that and the leaning into both the happiness of being restored and also the pain of what had been lost. And ever since I first saw those pictures, they're just so powerful. And I bet there was some crying like that going on once things got far enough in the conversation to move that direction. I'm not big on long quotes, but I want to give you a long quote from that book I mentioned just a few weeks ago. Um, Mending, uh, is it Mending the Heart by, uh, by Stephen Tracy. The story of Joseph powerfully models the importance for both personal and relational health of facing the brokenness of abuse after God miraculously delivered Joseph from prison and gave him an exalted position in the Egyptian government. Joseph did not simply ignore his painful past. Rather, he honestly faced the past abuse he'd suffered. He didn't deny or repress the emotional pain 
But he entered into the ache of his brother's past abuse and present distrust by weeping bitterly. Furthermore, Joseph repeatedly orchestrated events to force his brothers to come to grips with their abuse. Joseph didn't execute his plan simply to torment them. Rather, he sought to force them to come to grips with the reality of their sinful behavior. Joseph's boldness in facing the truth of his brother's abuse and its personal impact prompted his brothers to do the same, causing them to repent. I believe it's Ken Sandy who wrote a book called The Peacemaking Pastor. In that book, he talks about the fact that for every conflict that Christians find themselves in, the great question in those conflicts is how is Christ to be glorified when restoration and forgiveness finally take place? And for each one of us, Jesus Christ is glorified in our lives when we choose to forgive, when we choose to let go, when we choose to allow restoration where perhaps it would be easier to withhold it. Uh, if you want a sort of a word bubble to sort of think about what Joseph's process looked like, he, uh, I've, I've listed four things out there. The steps of forgiveness we see in this passage is he's forced to face and feel what has happened. Facing and feeling the pain, facing and feeling the past, the difficulty. He'd gotten a chance to move past it enough that maybe all of a sudden, he wasn't having the dreams of being sold into slavery once a week. He was having them once a month or every few months, or it was slowly fading from his mind. Time was healing those wounds, and all of a sudden, here comes the one group of people out of all of human civilization that he never wanted to see again. There they are, and he has a choice of what to do, and he chooses to be willing to face and to feel. You know, for us, sometimes we get stuck in one or two kind of wrong ditches on either side of the road. We can either be people who say, well, I'm going to shut myself off from all the emotion. I'm going to bottle it up. I don't want to feel any of it. And if I can just do that, I know I can just keep going through it. Well, the problem is that all that stuff, just like lava under a volcano, just keeps festering and bubbling and working its way through. And it, it just eats away at our insides. We can't just bottle things up and remove ourselves from emotion. At the same time, we can't be people who just constantly live in a sense of defeat, who we focus on things so much that whether it's depression, anxiety, or otherwise, all of us deal with those things from time to time. But when we lean into them, that becomes a kind of self-serving, selfish look to focus so much on our problems, so much on our pain, that it just feeds a terrible cycle. Joseph is willing to lean in and face and feel what's going on for the purpose of getting through it, not just to be eaten up by it. And then we see that there's this moment of absolution, that the offense is dead. <laughs> my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Every single one of us, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we have absolution of our offenses, that they are dead. The words of Horatio Spafford's hymn come from the book of Colossians directly. That same language is what Paul uses to say that our sins have been nailed to the cross of Christ, that God has taken care of them, that they are gone, that they're dead. And so when we forgive, we have to make those offenses dead. They're gone. They don't keep getting brought up all the time. Well, this is the same thing you always do, and this is that, and this. If absolution, true forgiveness, is letting go and 
putting to death what's been done. Now, we've talked about already there's situations where, depending on the, the scenario, if someone's in a, a place where they're harmed or they're enabling something that's wrong and shouldn't be happening, you know, restoration is not always possible. But in most of our circumstances where we have an option to forgive, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, 70 times 7, or in essence, you're just going to have to keep on counting. I don't know about you, once I have to put 490 tally marks up on the wall, I might as well just not even try feel like a castaway on a desert island, you know, making all those forgive, 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 just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so absolution, making the offense to be dead. And then having a spiritual perspective, spiritual perspective. If you want to uh, flip over to chapter 50, one of Joseph's last conversations that's recorded for us in the Bible I want to start with verse 18 of chapter 50. This is after Jacob's death. They come to, uh, to Joseph and they say, well, now that our father's dead, we have a feeling you're going to try to do harm to us because you were only being nice to us because your father was still alive. Verse 18, this is what they said. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And it's in light of that statement that Joseph makes the most well-known verse of his story. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Here it is, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I love what Joseph says in verse 19. Am I in the place of God? Let me go ahead and give you the answer to that question always when it's asked in our life. No. Thankfully, no. It's been a few weeks ago, we looked in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus was saying, judge not so you won't be judged, condemn not so you won't be condemned, give and it will be given to you, forgive and you will be forgiven, that God is the one who has vengeance and justice. He has those things. We don't have to carry them. So Joseph says, am I in the place of God? But then ironically, he is mirroring the place of God in what he says in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Essentially, he's saying, you're still going to be my brothers. Remember the prodigal son heading home in Luke 15? And he has this sort of coming to his senses as he's sitting there longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs are eating. He says, my father's servants eat better than this. If I can just go home, I'll say to my dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him from a distance, had compassion on him, ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son begins this prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, quick, bring the fattened calf, bring the robe, bring the ring, put it on his finger. This son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and is found. Joseph's brothers come to him and they say, if we can survive, we're willing to just be your servants. Joseph says, you're my brothers. And he's mirroring the action of God that we'll see Jesus tell in the New Testament in the story of the prodigal son. 
Forgiveness is something that when it's not fully given, it can be something that we use to lord over people who have hurt us and wronged us. Forgiveness absolutely deadens and lets go of the things that have been done against us. And the spiritual perspective becomes what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And even in our deepest pain, we can see how God accomplishes things that he wouldn't have accomplished otherwise. I wonder how many times in the years that follow when Horatio Spafford got a chance to hear from people who were touched by the words to it as well. Even in heaven now, I wonder if it's still resounding to him to be told, let me tell you some other way that your words worked in the life of somebody through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual perspective that comes and then when all those things can happen, there's restoration. Things don't always go back to the way they always were, but they go back to being a place of fellowship and love and community and relationship. And sometimes it's even better than things were before because when you've been through a deep water with somebody and come to the other side, there's a bond that's there that's special. And so when repentance is there, it's time to forgive. And then lastly, repentance and restoration. I don't know, it's been a while since I've been out of grammar, so are might be the better word and is might be the better word. You correct it on your own sheet. I couldn't decide today. So repentance and restoration is or repentance and restoration are a powerful testimony. Repentance and restoration. Turn to chapter 49 and I'd like to look at verse 22. You have got offset text more than likely in your Bible, which indicates poetry or a song or some sort of prose, which means that Jacob is uh, reciting slash praying slash writing a prayer, a song over his sons as he's blessing them, as the end of his life is at hand. And he says this about Joseph, and let's come to verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Jacob's final statement about his son Joseph's life is the faithfulness and the mercy of Joseph when everybody else's arrows were aimed against him and he held his bow still. But then verse 24 ends this way. From there is the shepherd or the translation that I prefer or by the name of the shepherd the stone of Israel. You know how you and I are able to keep our bows still when all the arrows are flying at us? You know how we're able to walk through pain and get to the other side? You know how we're able to face and feel and move towards a spiritual perspective that understands God was at work even when we didn't understand why or how? How can we do that? We can do that by the name and in the power of the great shepherd whoever leads. Joseph didn't know him by name at that point. We know him by name. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd.
I lay down my life for my sheep. And so for us, he has done that. The cornerstone that the builders rejected or the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, the passage here even says the stone of Israel. Jacob, probably not even fully understanding what he was saying, was referring to the the fact that God's mercy and the foundational work of God's action in his son Joseph's life made all the difference. The next time you read the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah, you can think back to that moment when it all moved towards restoration where there had been brokenness before. The next time you walk through something really difficult, when you face pain, trial, trauma, abuse, difficulty, you're not alone. Joseph's pattern, Joseph's look to be willing to trust the Lord, remain faithful, and to see how God would create opportunity to move towards restoration is a powerful example for each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you care about what is difficult in our lives. And we know that when we face pain and when we face difficulty, that Jesus Christ has gone before us in that, that he has carried more than we will ever carry. And he's done so when he didn't have to. And so the lion of the tribe of Judah reminds us, reaching backward to that moment where you worked in Judah's heart to allow him to say what needed to be said, to make right what had so long been wrong. And so, Father, help us to realize that sometimes the really important moments of our life become the small times that we say or do what we should in an important moment. So, Lord, we just ask for your help in that and your blessing. We ask that in our relationships, you would help to move us towards restoration. And when restoration is not possible for any certain reason, Lord, help us to forgive and to make dead the offenses that have been committed against us, to let them go, leave them to you, and to take your hand. So, Father, tonight we thank you and we praise you for the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the cornerstone in whom when our house is built on that rock, we need not fear wind or rain or storm. So, Lord, may it ever be so in our hearts and in our lives that the Lord Jesus' work allows our bows to be stilled and your name to be proclaimed in a mighty way. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.